Today we're going to start a series of series. Actually, there are three mini-series within a lengthy series. We're talking about 12 weeks of messages, but dealing with really what I think are the three most critical areas that affect people's day-to-day lives. We're talking about marriage relationships, we're talking about family relationships, and we're going to talk about money issues. We find increasingly in our own counseling, but also in studies that I've done on what people are struggling with in America today, we find these are the ones that come up over and over and over again. There's probably no areas of people's lives that affect their sense of personal security and happiness and well-being more than how their marriage relationships are going, how their family relationships are going, and how they feel about their financial. And quite surprised as we live in what we call a post-Christian era, an era where people struggle with what we refer to as a biblical illiteracy. In other words, they know some things about the Bible. They know that the Bible is there. They may even regard the Bible as being God's word and something worth reading. But somehow in our technological age, it seems hard for people to get around to really reading it and feeling like they can understand it. And so there's going to be a decided focus in the direction that I'm going to be taking over these next 12 weeks because we find the Bible doesn't just address these topics, it addresses them exhaustively. And it addresses them with insights that even now many scholars are just beginning to discover and recognize as not being just the theology of the Bible, but being absolute truths that affect every one of our lives on a day-to-day basis. And so where we're going to begin our journey in this first few weeks is talking about not just that life matters, but that we're talking about marriage matters. And there's no area of a person's relationship that will more affect whether they are happy or unhappy than their experience within the relationship with another person. So to begin that, we want to start off where, um, with really the iconic passage in the Bible dealing with marriage, and that's Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. So if you don't mind turning with me in your Bible there, and while you're doing that, I just want to also mention that we passed out these little cards, and they are really Q&A cards, uh, because Wednesday night, we're going to be tagging on, basically taking what we address tonight a bit deeper and in a more interactive way. And we want to give you a chance to ask questions, whether you take this card and fill it out and turn it in, or you can go online to our website and you can find our WUFU form and you can write your question there. Um, it, to do so anonymously, you know, uh, and, and we just ask you to be a little bit gracious in how you ask the questions. You know, I mean, the questions that come oftentimes is, uh, since my husband is a jerk, I mean, you know, we're, it's not a good starting point for any of us. So uh, we would just ask you to really get down to saying, what is the thing that really is a serious issue for you and that you're struggling with in trying to find the pathway to a fulfilled and satisfying marriage relationship. But having said that, would you mind standing with me as we begin by reading this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, where Paul really puts the header over the entire passage, and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he continues more specifically, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I really think we could stop right there. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, there's more. <laughs> Darn, in fact, there's twice as much. Anyway, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, not just when you're attracted or in the mood, but just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Father, it is our prayer this morning that you would speak to each of us individually, even those of us who are not married, Lord, that you would speak to every one of us and we would hear from you and that our hearts would respond in faith to the things that you say. Give us insight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Over the years, I've heard a lot of people say a lot of things about marriage, including myself, but there are two things that I've never heard anyone say about marriage. The first is, I got married so I could be unhappy. I've never heard that. And secondly, I got married so I could experience divorce for myself. You see, everyone pretty much who marries does so with a certain expectation that they're going to live happily ever after. And I'm not suggesting that everyone who is married is perpetually unhappy or even would prefer to be unmarried. In fact, even people who don't consider their marriages to be great consider their marriage state to be better than being unmarried because there is at least someone else to share the misery with. <laughs> but also beyond that, we have come to discover there are amazing benefits. Uh, you know, basically the proverb says that when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. Well, we know also from a scientific perspective that, for example, the American Psychological Association said healthy marriages are good for couples mental and physical health. They're also good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. Men's Health Magazine, in fact, summed it up really well by saying, married men earn more money, get promoted faster, get into less trouble, and have more and more satisfying sex, live longer and healthier which is kind of amazing when you think about it because that's hardly the way married life is portrayed. It's hardly the way it's advertised, particular within our media world today. But the key to all of this is that one word, happy. Happily married. Because many people are not happily married. Each year, 1.2 million of our neighbors file for divorce. And the idea that, well, I didn't get it right the first time, but practice makes perfect, doesn't prove to be true when it comes to marriage. In fact, not only do we find that there's a, between a 40 to 50% divorce rate amongst people in first-time divorces, that rate in second marriages goes up to 67% of marriages will fail. And even worse, third marriages are 73% more likely to be unsuccessful. So it's like the more you marry and divorce, the more likely you are to marry and divorce. And probably for the same reason, because you're convinced that the problem is always the other person. But the only common denominator in each of those successive marriages is that you're in each of them. We ought to be able to draw a clue and make, connect the dots. But see, this is why many today are opting out of marriage altogether. In fact, it's staggering to realize that 45%, according to the latest census, of family or households are cohabitating relationships. In other words, they've never, they haven't bothered with the formality of a marriage contract, a marriage license. They're instead choosing to do the test drive formerly known as shacking up, and now we call, refer to it more gently as cohabitation, uh, which is kind of a more impoverished way of saying relationships without commitments. Uh, we find that more and more people are choosing that, and yet the question comes, how is that working out? Well, the recent research, and it's amazing how much research has been done on cohabitation, is not something that I think should encourage people to take that route. In fact, we find that only 20% of couples who are living together will actually ever get married. And of those 20%, 80% of them will eventually divorce. 
So when you begin to look it out, you realize that out of every hundred couples that choose to live together, only 4% will still be married 10, 15, or 20 years from now, if they marry at all. A 4% success rate. Now, if I were to board a plane, the pilot says, good news, I think we're going to make our 4% landing average. You know, <clears throat> I, would, I would give up flying altogether. I mean, it's, it's really not, it's not good odds. And yet, even though a crashing plane may be more deadly, actually only about 50% of people who are in airline crash actually die. The rest are horribly maimed for life. But nonetheless, the, 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 the odds are so terrible that you wonder why anybody would consider that as an option. And yet the reality is because we live in a world that doesn't always tell the truth. That it is presented and portrayed as being a liberating way to live your life instead of seeing that marriage is the most liberating and freeing or at least potentially relationship you can have. In fact, there are significantly level, lower levels of satisfaction and happiness registered by people who are cohabitating. Because, as one study said, cohabitators were found to be more inclined to argue, to hit, shout, have an affair, unfair division of labors than do married couples. Twice as likely to have an extramarital affair their sex lives are less fulfilling since commitment is key to feeling safe in an intimate relationship. And there are children, on average, experience a much higher level of emotional and social trauma. What is ironic is that, nonetheless, we find that large peoples are choosing, a number of people are choosing this option. And maybe the reason is because actually getting married has become so expensive. The average wedding is $30,000. That's more than my first house. An average wedding is $30,000. And yet what's amazing to me, we spend a small fortune a day on getting married, yet invest almost nothing into staying married. Never before have people invested so much into being happy and gotten so little back in return. Now, we need to ask the question, why is that the case? What's going on? And I would begin with the statement of two Old Testament prophets that I think speak directly to this as well as other issues. For example, Hosea the prophet in, in, in chapter 4, verse 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That we find that most people go into marriage with wholly unrealistic expectations they're carrying with them a whole inventory of techniques and approach and attitudes about what it means to be married that are not only often completely wrong, but even harmful to a healthy relationship. Secondly, the prophet Amos said in Amos 8.11, he says, there's a famine in the land for the hearing of the word of God. And you're going to understand, if you stick through this whole series, that my position is that the Word of God has the answers to what ails us. Amen. And until we come to grips with that and begin to look at every aspect, but particularly the marital relationship through the lens of God's truth, we're going to find ourselves like starving people. We're going to be like Stacy Irvine. Do you know Stacy? She's a young British girl who, at the age of two, was treated by her mom to a serving of chicken McNuggets. Stacy fell in love with chicken McNuggets. In fact, she got so obsessed that she would not eat anything other than chicken McNuggets until at 17 years of age, she collapsed, and under diagnosis, they said she was starving to death because she had no vitamins, no minerals, no antioxidants, and that they said if she continues living on just chicken McNuggets, she's going to die. So I think she's begun to supplement it with pork rinds. But, <laughs> but seriously, my point is this, that many of us are trying to go through life 
and trying to have successful relationships, marriages, family life, living on a diet that is literally starving us because we get all the advice. We got Dr. Oz, we got Oprah, we got Dr. Phil, we got all these people, and I don't mean to, to diss on them, but essentially we find that all of this advice is treating symptoms but never really diagnosing and addressing the real root causes. And that's where the Bible differs from other pieces of literature out there. It goes to the root causes. It talks about heart issues. It gets to the really the underlying basis of the dysfunctionality that every one of us are experiencing. And I say that really very inclusively because as one psychiatrist said recently that 95% of American families are dysfunctional. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, that number is way too low. You see... <laughs> The nature of being sinners is dysfunctionality. <laughs> now, you don't have to be dysfunctional in every area of your life, but somehow, don't you and I discover we tend to be dysfunctional in the ones that matter most to us? That's why the greatest heartbreak in life, the most painful thing that we can experience is broken relationships. There's nothing more painful. I mean, it's, and we live in a world that is becoming increasingly defined by broken relationships, and the way we manage it is we create greater distance and greater silence so that we don't have to have the encounters that cause pain and that are hurtful. As I said, we live in a biblically illiterate world. Most people don't realize that uh, God has made a whole plan for us that he's looked at our life and he's looked at marriage and he says, here's the way that you make it work. And we have to admit that in many ways it's counterintuitive. And I'm going to make this statement and I'll probably be misunderstood. I'll try to be very, very concise and clear. But let me begin by saying, when we talk about marriage, God never created it to be something that sinners would be participants in. In other words, if we go back in the Bible and say, when did marriage first appear on the scene of humanity? And the answer is, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve before they had a chance to screw it up. But when sin entered into it, immediately in chapters 3 and chapters 4, we began to see relationships begin to fall apart, even to the point where Cain murders his brother Abel and, jo and, and, and Adam tells Eve it's all her fault. And that's the nature of things, so that what we have to understand is that the institution of marriage was created by God to be engaged in by two spiritual beings, two people whose lives were centered on God. And when that became broken, the first thing that began to fall apart was the marriage relationship, and then the family relationship, and then the social relationships, and the national relationships. And out of that comes all the dysfunctionality we see in the world, because God did not create us for sin. In fact, sin in itself is extremely toxic to the human condition. I just wish you would stop doing it. <laughs> Make my life so much easier. <laughs> but here's what's striking to me is God doesn't say, get married and hang on to the end and I'll give you a blessing in eternity. No, God actually says in his word that I want your marriage relationship in this world to be wondrous beyond your expectations. In fact, in Proverbs 5, Solomon described it this way. He said, rejoice. In other words, find all joy and celebration in the wife of your youth. May, here's a part I love. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. And literally that word captive means to be intoxicated, to be lost in, to be completely enamored by her love for you. And then he says finally, why embrace the bosom of another? Why be so foolish to go looking someone else, somewhere else other than to look for that fulfillment in the wife of your youth. You see, like most wise men, Solomon was speaking from the perspective of failure. Uh, the secret of good decisions is bad decisions. You make enough and you start getting wise. 
So when you meet somebody who seems to have such sagaciousness, such wisdom, such says advice, you're talking about somebody who has screwed up a lot. And Solomon was speaking from a perspective of a guy who really knew how to mess this thing up. I mean, the guy married 700 times. He came to this truth the hard way, and he said, when it's all said and done, I was unsatisfied, and rather than being captive of love, I became captive of sheer, mere sexuality and sensuality. And as we know his story in the end, it brought horrible death and destruction to everything that he had built and everything he loved and everything he valued. What we need is not man's advice. We need God's word, his truth. And what is God's secret to maritable bliss? Well, that's where he begins. It begins with this idea that my greatest joy is going to be found with the one whom God has, well, Jesus put it this way, whom God has joined. That my relationship with my wife, my marriage to my wife was not simply serendipity and kismet. It wasn't simply, you know, some enchanted evening, I looked across the room. No, it wasn't any of that kind of nonsense, even though some of that silliness was part of the fun of it all. But I know that I know this, at least I choose to believe that God in his sovereign wisdom and grace brought this woman into my life at the time that he did that we might become one. And having become one, we're one until death does us part. Now, you know, there are people saying, how did you manage to survive a marriage for 46 years? And I think my wife wonders that all the time. Yeah, she tells me there have been some incre incredible moments in our marriage. I can count them on one hand. But the point is, how do you in enjoy that relationship? How do you build that relationship over the years and over time? And it really begins with this decision, this was God's will. This is God's will. I remember in our early marriage where my wife and I uh, we didn't just fight like cats and dogs. Cats and dogs would gather to watch us fight. I mean, it was, we, we were oil and water. We were so different and it had no concept because we were just convinced that the reason we were different is because the other person's wrong. Sound familiar? <laughs> and as we're in the midst of this, we, the one and only time I think we ever used the D word in our relationship where we talked about, well, maybe we should get a d -d 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 divorce. And we both knew immediately that it was wrong to even allow ourselves to have that conversation. And the most important thing for us was, how do we so disobey God, dishonor Christ, and how will that devastate our testimony to our families? Because, as I like to say in my book, if the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference, what difference does it make? If Jesus can't enable us to figure out how to have a loving, lasting relationship, then how can I believe that he can have a loving, lasting relationship with me, and how can I believe that he can actually save a sinner like me? That there has to be this availability of abundant grace that enables us to not only live together till death do his part, but to love the fact that we live together until death do his part. And most of you have enough mileage in life. You understand. I'm not saying that it's always easy and always fun and that you never fight and you never argue. I just drove 4,000 miles across the country with my wife. Please. <laughs> Let me just say, we have two dramatically different approaches to speed limits. You see, I get in trouble. If I drive to Seattle and I'm doing 80, I'm in trouble. My wife will not let me have a moment's peace. I don't know why. I'm driving across South Dakota, and it says 80 miles an hour, and I said, there is a God. <laughs> and I tried to meet him. That's why I said, that means really 95. I haven't seen a cop in two days. It's all good. For some reason, she doesn't 
understand these truths of the universe. I love the way Peterson rendered the passage in, in Proverbs. He said, don't ever quit taking delight in her body and never take her love for granted. And then he adds this little quip. He says, why would you trade enduring intimacy for cheap thrills? Why would you trade enduring intimacy for cheap thrills? Now I know what some of you are thinking. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. You're right. I don't, probably, but God does. More importantly, God knows you. And he never commands you or I to do something that he will not give us the grace to fulfill and to do it in a fulfilling way. God never commands us to do something that he will not give us the grace to fulfill and to do it in a very fulfilling way. So the question is, how do I go about doing that? Well, that's where, again, Ephesians 5 comes in. I mean, uh, a passage like this, and in its length, I could spend many days on, and I could take in so many different directions. If you get my book, you'll find I do that in detail. But as I was going through it this last week, it really struck me that there are three things that Paul identifies in this chapter, this passage, that I think are really the keys, the secrets, the really the, the way in which we find rejoicing in a marriage relationship. And they are simply, I'll say in advance, are these three things. One is that we reverence Christ, we reverence God. But secondly, that we love our spouse. And thirdly, that we respect our spouse. Now, I know some of you are saying that list gets harder the further you go down. But let me begin, first of all, with this issue. Because when we talk about reverence, there's really a choice in life as to what you're going to reverence. And you know what the word reverence means. It means to fear. Literally, the word phobios in the Greek, it's, it means to fear. And it's an interesting kind of fear that Paul is dis describing here when he says to us, uh, reverence Christ. And let, let me fact and say, precede that by saying this. When we read this passage, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we often focus in on the word submit. And that's not the imperative word here. Reverence is the imperative word. Because if you say to somebody, you need to submit, what you're speaking into their life is bondage and slavery. No wonder when women read wives submit to their husbands, they begin to pull back in a kind of a revulsion because they're looking at saying, this man is a sinner with, he may have some strengths and positives, but he also got some real negatives. He's wrong as often as he is right. He's bad as often as he is good. And she can make a compelling argument why submitting to him is not a good choice. And she just sees bondage in it. But first of all, Paul says, no, I'm talking about mutual submission. That even when he tells a man to love his wife, that's a form of submission. In fact, I would say that's a more aggressive form of submission, especially the way he talks about submission to your, to your wife or loving your wife, to give yourself for her as Christ gave himself for his church. Do you remember the cross and him being nailed to it? <laughs> it's a sacrificial loving relationship. So that bar is really high so that when my wife gets mad at me and says, you're not loving me the way Christ loved his church, my spiritual response is, uh, duh. <laughs> I, you know, no question. How, how do I live up to that except by the grace of God? And the answer is, it begins with reverencing Christ above everything else in my life. The word reverence, as I said, literally means a trembling fear. But trembling about what? A trembling fear of disobeying, disregarding, discounting God's word. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Proverbs says it's the beginning of wisdom. It says it's the beginning of insight and understanding in all of life is to have this reverential fear of God where you take God seriously. 
You take his word seriously. You don't read it and think, well, that was for that time, but I don't really have to worry about that today. That's not reverencing Christ. That's not reverencing his word. That's reverencing yourself and your own opinion and your own superior intellect, but not reverencing God. And all we have to do is look at the trajectory of people's lives and figure out real quick which one is the most beneficial. Those of us who have been followers of Christ for any extended period of time know from our own experience, and we would say that you can know by looking at our lives, that those choices to reverence Christ rather than to reverence our own opinions have proven themselves out to be the better choice. Even though they were so often scarier and they were incredibly non-intuitive and felt at times like they were going to be so costly. Nevertheless, we learned by trusting God and submitting to him that that was always the best way to go, the better answer. Basically, it's, it's taking God's word as factual and taking it seriously and being terrified with the idea that I would disregard or disobey it. And knowing that if I do, that there will be negative consequences. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows is what a man reaps. And he's talking about that when we choose to disregard what God has to say, it will always prove out to be a bad choice, a bad decision. You see, because marriage was created and designed by God, it's not simply a legal contract between two consenting adults. It's not simply living together as two consenting adults and engaging in the things that our consenting adults do. It's not having friendships with benefits. It's not loosely hooking up with somebody. What it is is a sacred covenant. And I emphasize this word sacred covenant between a man and God and a woman and God. So that when I do marriage ceremonies, I always remind the couple that as you pronounce your vows this morning or this afternoon or this evening before God, you as a man are saying, I promise to honor God's word in regards to my relationship with this woman. And to a woman, you're promising God, you're vowing to God to honor God's word in regards to this man. That your accountability network is not with each other. But your accountability is with God. Remember years ago, Billy Graham said to some pastors, he said there are three things that a pastor should never touch. One is the gold, the second is the glory, and the third is the gals. And you know what I found over the years? I found that I've never known anybody who ever touched the gals or the gold who didn't first touch the glory. Didn't first fall into that trap of seeing ourselves really kind of a cut above the rest and, and, and feeling some kind of privilege and entitlement. Because with that, when we start touching the glory, we, and, and that means essentially we try to glorify ourselves, we begin to embolden ourselves to ignore the things that God said we should not do. You see, that's the whole point, that this is a sacred covenant that you enter into in marriage. That's why weddings have vows, you know, and I, I have to confess, I mean, I don't know what your vows were, uh, but I've, I've heard, I've gone to friends and relatives' weddings where they wrote their own vows, and sometimes I think, this is the most non-vow vow I've ever made, I've ever heard. And if in the future our lives should take separate paths, we will not be an have animosity or resentment, but we will encourage each other to find their greater higher. I said, talk about permission to do your own thing. Because there are going to be all sorts of moments when you're thinking, is it really cheaper to keep her? <laughs> that was a guilty laugh. 
No, there needs to be something. There needs to be an anchor that actually goes to the bottom of the sea and, and, and sets itself in the, in the floor of the bed of the ocean. Something that really does give it some hanging in there. And that anchoring is, this was a sacred vow, a covenant that I entered in with God. And as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, when you vow a vow, be sure and keep that vow because God takes no pleasure in fools. In other words, if you make that vow to God and you don't follow it, he says you're being foolish. This is something, as I said, that Jesus said in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, that God has joined together. And he says, let no man separate. Because when God is at the center of marriage, even sex becomes an expression of worship. Did you hear that? That when God is at the center of the marriage, when, he, when my relationship with my wife is really centered in Christ, even physical intimacy becomes part of the worship experience. But you take God out of that and it becomes something tawdry. It becomes something dirty. It becomes, as C.S. Lewis put it so well, he says it turns into a predatorial relationship where we fall, the object, the, 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 the beloved becomes nothing more than an object. So that when God is not at the center, what we actually are engaging in is a form of idolatry. You see, idolatry is the worship and the adoration of something or someone other than God in the vain belief that it or they can lead us to happiness. Now, you and I fall into idolatrous patterns and behaviors all the time. If I could just get that job, if I could just get that woman to marry me, if I just get that man to notice me, if I could just get a date, if I could just get a promotion, if I could just make a little bit more money, if I could just get that new pair of shoes, if I could just get that watch or that hairstyle, or in a million different ways it flows, if I could just get this, then it would be good. Then I would be happy. That's idolatry. Because it's missing one of the central truths of, I think, in fact, Blaise Pascal put it so well. He said, happiness is neither inside or outside. It is in God, both inside and outside. Happiness is not inside or outside. Happiness is in God, both on the inside and as a consequence also on the outside. Happiness is in God. That's what true worship is. It's this settled confidence and commitment and belief with all of my heart, soul, mind, body, and strength that happiness is not going to be found essentially or primarily or even initially in relationships or in the acquisition of stuff. It's not going to come through status or any of those other things. It comes from being in God. Because you see, when you make your beloved, your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your whatever, the center of your devotion, and we love, I mean, just listen to, to music, you know, about I'm so devoted to you and the sun rises and sets on you and so forth and so on. I mean, we say all these things in, in poetic ways and we think, oh, isn't it really romantic? And, and we love this because the other person is saying, I worship you, I adore you. And everybody wants to be a god, a goddess, Right? That's what we like. That's why those Victoria's Secret commercials always have these girls walking out with angels' wings on. How do you buy a dress for someone built like that? I don't know. But the whole point is we want to create this, this exaggerated adoration and we want ourselves to be treated. You don't treat me special anymore. You don't bring me flowers. And on and on it goes. Now, I'm not speaking against flowers. Don't, don't put that on the card. Okay. I can only imagine what I'm going to get on the cards. <laughs> no questions, just comments. <laughs> but what happens is when the object of our worship fails to make us happy, and they will, it will fail to make you happy, we feel betrayed and we fall out of love and we start looking for a new lover. 
We start looking for a new idol to worship, even as our now fallen idol is promising to be better and to get it right this time and not to fall into the same mistakes and to live up to your expectations all the time. The skepticism grows inside of us because we know in the heart of our hearts that they can't do it. Sooner or later, we're going to be let down again in one way or another, big or small. Which leads me to the second issue is that we have to make God the object of our worship. We have to reverence Him because it's the only way that we can love the way God loves. And the choice is really we can be lovers of other people or we can be people who live with resentments. Because when love begins to die, what dies with it is openness and intimacy, the two things that we are yearning for more than anything else in a relationship. To be loved by somebody who knows you from cover to cover, who knows everything about you. To be loved. I think that one of the things that was so wonderful for my wife and I, we first got married, is we began to discover who each other was, warts and all. And there was a continuation of love and acceptance. And at that point, you sit back and go, wow, I'm safe. I'm safe. And when that openness begins to die, begins to close off, and the, what happens is the intimacy is no longer there. I love it. Uh, Dr. John Gottman, who has spent the last 40 years studying why relationships fail, over here is the Gottman Institute of the University of Washington. He called, he said, the secret of successful marriage is the six-second kiss. The six-second kiss. What does he mean by that? He said, now six seconds when you're kissing your wife or husband and they're going out the door proves to be quite a long period of time. <laughs> My wife and I have the 60 millisecond peck. <laughs> but the whole point is, to kiss somebody that long requires you to enjoy the practice. You're enjoying it. And as you kiss that person and you're enjoying it, what you are communicating to this other person is there's an openness and an intimacy that we have in our relationship. You can't do that if you're angry, bitter, resentful. You can't do it. You can't probably kiss at all. And he said, what you need to do is just make it a habit to have that six-second kiss. I've been, and I'm sharing this with you this morning so that my wife could hear this. <laughs> In fact, I'm suggesting to her several times a day would be my, my measure. But you understand what I'm saying. Those of you who are married, you understand how true this is. And in fact, you take an inventory and sit back and say, when's the last time you just had a real good wet smacker? <laughs> you may sit back and go, oh, it's kind of been a while. Oh, I've got my makeup on. Don't mess it up. <laughs> and that's me. So <laughs> and what happens is we start finding replacements for it. We replace that openness and that intimacy, that real uh, expression of loving, because that's what loving is. It's openness and it's intimacy. We begin to replace it with stuff. We, get it, we replace it with routines, we replace it with kids, we replace it with careers, we replace it with materialism. We, re we may get so involved in our kids' sports program that our family is defined by how many athletic events our kids are involved in or whatever it is. But most dangerously, there's an increased unwillingness to forgive. And let me simply say that to say that we love someone and to be unforgiving is a lie. Paul talked about the danger in 1 Corinthians 13 in defining love. He said, you know, that we start keeping a record of when, it has been, when we have been wronged. The word keeping there literally translates to count, uh, to compute, to calculate. And I love this. Thayer said, it's to count over and over and over again. You begin recitating in your mind, probably to yourself and sometimes verbally, the record of wrongs. There you go again. You always, do. this is the way you, you never, you, and we use certain terms like that. But this, this is the same thing that you've been doing for 25 years, and I've just had it up to here with that. You know, I love that phrase when people say, this is the last straw. <laughs> I think, well, who told you to collect straw in the first place? 
And collecting resentments and hurts and offenses is as stupid as going around with a bag collecting straw. There's only one valuable thing about straw. It burns really fast and really hot. And you're the one who gets burnt. You see, God offers us an alternative. When he says in Ephesians 4.32, forgive others as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now, keep in mind, forgiving someone doesn't mean forgetting or ignoring or pretending it never happened. No, this is what forgiveness is. I find, it took me years to work this out in my own head. Forgiving somebody is to consciously choose not to remember. Because I can tell you, in an, in an idle moment, I can begin to have memories of things that I was offended or hurt or wounded or betrayed or let down or disappointed by. I mean, I, it just comes without any effort. And I have to bring my thoughts, as Paul said to the Corinthians, into the captivity of Christ under his lordship. And what does that mean? It says, I acknowledge that this is sin for me to entertain these thoughts. It's sin for me to put out my best china and have cookies and tea based upon resentments and disappointments and things that we feel in our hearts about the past. He says, it's consciously choosing to say, I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to keep a record of wrongs. And I would suggest that there are probably many of us in this room right now who desperately need to repent on this point, if no other. We have to repent of the inventory of offenses that we carry with us. Because we have this deceptive idea that if I let down my guard, if I choose to no longer keep that list of offenses, well, then I'm going to be caught off guard. And so you live your entire relationship in a karate stance. Oh! You know, you're, you're like, karate kid. And you know the thing I noticed about that movie, The Karate Kid, because my kids watch it I don't know how many times. You know what I noticed about that movie? Nobody ever hugged him when he was doing the grasshopper. <laughs> There's no closeness. What that is saying to you is, back off. And without even realizing it, we begin to send this nonverbal message to the world around us. Back off, dude. Keep your distance. Because I'm safe in my distance. You cannot say that you love a person if you cling to resentments and you refuse to forgive, which brings me to the last point. Not only am I supposed to, am I supposed to love my spouse, but I'm supposed to respect her and she me as opposed to being contemptuous. I mentioned earlier Dr. John Gottman, who uh, is really considered to be the foremost specialist on the issue of broken relationships, was a dubious title, but he was driven to his research four decades ago because he saw what was happening in America. Trying to understand it from a purely scientific perspective, and this is what he found out, what he concluded about contempt. He said it's the number one predictor of a divorce. I quote, whatever form it takes, contempt can be lethal to a relationship. Contempt is sulfuric acid for love. It is the most poisonous of all relationship killers, destroying psychologically, emotionally, and even physical health. Used to be all saying, you know, it's, um, it's not what you eat, it's what eats you that kills you. That in an age where people are so worried about making sure that they don't eat things that are harmful and so forth, uh, the thing that always struck me is I always noticed that the uh, health food experts always died young. Uh, most of them die in their 50s. <laughs> I guess it's just eating all those pine needles and nuts and stuff. I don't know what it is, but the whole point is that it isn't what you eat ultimately that's going to shorten your lifespan. It's the thing that eats you. It's the thing that's eating you up. And contempt is one of the most noxious things. What is contempt? Well, Dr. Gottman gives three categories. First of all, he says it's a hostile humor and sarcasm. The word sarcasm comes from the Greek word sark, the flesh. And it literally means a tearing away at the flesh. 
It's the kind of statements that can be really strong, like, you are such an idiot. You are so stupid. What in the world is wrong with you? That's hostile. Or it's even making joke. Well, you know, my husband, <laughs> I tell you, if there's something that it can go wrong, he's going to find it. <laughs> That's contempt. Contempt is mockery, name-calling, mimicking, so that when your wife says something and she turns her back and you look at the others in the room and go, <laughs> it's contempt. It's offensive body language. You know what offensive body language is? You know what it is. You, you do it. <laughs> you may have done it this morning, right? A few minutes ago. I don't, but it's just simply saying is I am not, I have absolutely no respect or regard for anything you're doing or anything you say. It's the polar opposite of love and respect. You see, what I find interesting, what Dr. Gottman discovered 40 years ago, or over 40 years in research, is revealed to us in the Bible 2,000 years ago. <laughs> he could have saved us, taxpayers, the University of Washington, a lot of people, a lot of time and energy if he just simply read the Bible because Paul put it very clearly at the end of this passage we just read. He said, each one of you must love and respect the other. Each one of you must do this. This is not optional. This is required. Now, I know the argument. <laughs> when he gives me something to respect, I'll respect him. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. My father, who I grew up in a military family, and my father said, you, you salute the uniform, not the man inside of it. Right? Some of you have been in the service, you know all about that. Why was that important? Because without it, what follows is chaos disorder. And, and, and so he said, basically, you have to respect the structures, even though the people who are within the structures don't live up to the, to the standards that they themselves may even set. You need to stress, because without that structure, you end up with anarchy. That many homes become places of anarchy. There, there's ongoing warfare in the home that sometimes flares into hot battles and most of the time is just simmering under the surface. But it's because we've made a decision, I will not respect and I will not love because love means vulnerability. Love means openness and honesty. Love's scary. It's difficult to speak the truth in love, far more difficult than most of us realize. But at the end of the day, I remember how my wife said to me one day when we were having a tiff, and I call it a tiff, um, and, we were, and she looked at me and said, you don't understand. I wouldn't tell you this stuff if I didn't love you. And at that moment, it says, a wise man loves the truth. A fool hates it. A wise man embraces rebuke. So that when you begin to understand that this is a relationship that is central to everything in my life, it's, it's that my personal happiness will hang on this. And that if I don't learn the lessons that God is trying to teach my wife and I in the context we're in at this moment in our life, that I am condemned to repeat them even if I go to another relationship, I will simply have to relearn these things because I never learned them in the first place. That ultimately why the relationship is in conflict is a breakdown in my relationship with God. I'm convinced that God designed marriage first and foremost, to teach us how to love unconditionally. He designed marriage to teach us how to love unconditionally. Because those of us who are married know that there are times that if it were not for God, you would have been out the door a long time ago. But you hung in there because you knew that God said, I want you to love, I want you to forgive, and I want you to respect in imitation of Jesus. I know that some of you are saying, but you don't understand my situation. You're right, I don't. 
but this isn't my opinion. These aren't my ideas. This is God. This is His Word. These are His truths. And let me tell you that if you recognize, you know, I, I've been an error here in my, in my marriage. I have the one word solution. Repent. <laughs> Just repent. God, I am sorry. I am truly sorry for not worshiping you. I am so sorry for trying to make my husband or my wife an idol that gives me happiness instead of realizing that that comes from you. I'm sorry that I've been consumed with being married to the right person instead of being committed to being the right person. I'm sorry, God. Because you see, when we repent, what we do is we open the door for God's grace to flood in. And he has a way, a way of just flooding in with healing and forgiveness and restoration and bring you back to that thing that you got married for in the first place, openness and intimacy with this person, with another person, someone that I can share my life with until death, death do us part. You know? Yeah. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would penetrate deeply into our hearts, into our thought life. We live in a world that just is bombarded with quick, clever, superficial, for the moment, in the moment, data and information that may give us all sorts of facts and figures but gives us absolutely no wisdom, insight, or understanding. And I know there are some of us who have found ourselves frustrated and, and discouraged because we uh, feel like we just keep on hitting our head against the wall and nothing changes. But a big part of that, Father, we confess is because we're waiting for the other person to change. We're waiting for that other person to figure it out, to get it, pull it together and become what they're supposed to be and we've missed the point that, God, nothing will change until we come humbly before you and say, God, start with me. It's a realization that I can't fix another person, the only person I can do. I can't even fix myself, but I can come to you and say, God, I give you permission to fix me. You said many times our prayers aren't answered because we don't pray them correctly. We're praying that God would wallop somebody else so that we don't have to be discomforted. We pray that God would impoverish somebody else so that we can be enriched. We pray that God would curse somebody else so that we could be blessed. Forgive us for that, God. Help us to humble ourselves before you and just say, God, change me. I repent. Forgive me. And begin to teach me how to love unconditionally. Grant us that grace, Father, in Jesus' holy name. As we continue on for a few moments, where the worship team is going to lead us, and it gives us an opportunity to respond to God. I would really encourage you to give thought to the questions that you feel didn't get answered, the topics that didn't get covered. I mean, we'll be here on Wednesday night, and, and I think you'll have fun. I think it's going to be kind of a fun time. It's a pretty short time. You know, it's only from 7 to 8. It's a one-hour service, which, you know, oftentimes leaves people with whiplash. But um, the point is that these are such big issues. I really encourage you, if you can do it, to, to come back and continue the conversation. The reason I wrote a book on marriage years ago was simply because I found I'd speak at these seminars and, and even a three-day weekend with a group of people wasn't enough because then they would drive home and everything would just pick up where it left off, that we need to be able to address things. It says it takes 29 days to change a bad habit. It's that repetition of addressing a thing over and over again that begins to really get traction in our lives and begin to make a difference. You know, and um, so I encourage you to do that. 
I encourage you to pick up a copy of my book. It's so good. <laughs> I tell you how good it is. My wife one time looked at me and said, you know, I wish I was married to this guy. <laughs> she said, do you ever think about reading it yourself? <laughs> so, I mean, that doesn't come with any higher recommendation. <laughs> but seriously, I'm asking you at least for the next few weeks on Sundays and if you can on Wednesdays, to commit your relationship to pressing your relationship and to let God begin to change the way you think about this and the way you instinctively respond that God can really give you a different heart. I trust he will do that.